We last heard from Jika Loning in the first podcast of this year, talking about her passion for the fiddle and her work with the local group Fun Fiddle. That was recorded in mid-December, just before she flew out to Greece. Earlier this week, she gave a talk, one in the series known as the Dalriada Conversations, about her experience in Samos. This was her first time as a volunteer. She'd taken many pictures showing the shocking conditions in which the refugees are forced to live. She'd seen many similar images before she went. But what was the reality she found there? The reality was much worse than I could have possibly imagined when you're actually there in that physical space meeting those real people and getting to know individuals and enjoying new friendships with people you understand that they're just people the same as you who happen to be in the wrong part of the world at the wrong time who've had to flee their homes which they all long to go back to how difficult though is it to get to know individuals because how many of them actually speak English or do you speak another language which allow you to make contact with them? Well, I'm ashamed to say that my French is incredibly minimal, my Arabic is non-existent, and Farsi, I hardly even know what that is. So I'm afraid I was hugely dependent on people that spoke English to me and I was massively humbled by the skill. of You know, it's like that wherever you go abroad, everyone can speak your language and, you know, I felt ashamed about that. So lots of people did speak English where there was some... French we could communicate and actually we could also communicate through music and just all kinds of gestures of friendship which communicate masses. The interesting thing is you mentioned music and you took a fiddle with you. Yeah so I did take a fiddle with me and which I've left there and I still think of, of my fiddle over there and wonder and hope that somebody's playing it or making use of it. And so I took a fiddle over there, not really knowing exactly what I was going to do, but I knew that I would want to bring my music with me. And I can honestly say that fiddle playing there had the most astounding effect, you know, with with all ages, with adults, with children, with women, with men. And just it was so, so, so appreciated and in a way that I've never experienced quite in this country, even though we all love music you know, we're saturated with it. But when you're in a place where you've been through the most traumatic journey, every single person there has come on one of those leaky dinghy boats and escaped with their lives, to then hear a live instrument being played to you has a very, very profound effect, a hugely therapeutic effect, which um, I was bowled over by. The kids loved it. They got incredibly overexcited. I remember a woman becoming completely entranced just listening. And I have to say, it's not because of my fiddle playing. It was just hearing somebody playing a fiddle. In her case, possibly it was to do with a woman playing an instrument. She was from Afghanistan. And it crossed my mind as well. She may not have heard a live instrument being played for many, many years. It must have evoked for her all kinds of things, but the look on her face I will never forget. There was also an Iranian man who played the guitar, who was playing from his tradition, and then you joined in. I've got a sort of limited ability to kind of busk along, and it was in that Arabic mode that I'm quite familiar with through my own Jewish klezmer playing. It's very similar... He was playing the most absolutely gorgeous Iranian love song. He was a very accomplished guitarist and singer. So I was able to 
kind of jam along with my fiddle. He was just like bowled over by this and so was all his friends and you know we played that song again and again and for me it was just like this is a brilliant way to connect because we didn't share a language but we definitely did share that musical language and I only wish I had a recording of us doing it. Now the refugees themselves they live under plastic or under tarpaulin sheets rather. You yourself, though, were living in very, very Spartan conditions as well. Well, you know, it was okay. It was just like a little bit of a hovel, and I I wasn't complaining too much because I had to keep reminding myself I have a roof over my head, as did all the volunteers there. But, yeah, you know, it was pretty cold. It was freezing cold in Greece between uh, December to January. It's been, like, one of their worst winters. So I was lying there, like, in my bed with one blanket, with all my clothes on. I got these stones and put them into the my little baby belling and heated them up and then put them in my bed. I found all these resources that I probably wouldn't even think of doing at home. But all I could think, really, is, like, I'm in, in a house. I'm I'm not being rained on. You know, I might be cold, but this is nothing compared to what the people up the hill are experiencing. And knowing that they were just up the hill from me was quite hard. It's quite a tough thing that all the volunteers have to adjust to that fact that we are not refugees. We are housed and um, we've got... You have a home to go home to. We have a home to go home to. And at the end of our volunteering stint, we get on a plane and wave goodbye. And that was probably perhaps the hardest bit knowing that just seeing the longing in some of the refugees eyes people I'd made friends with who were generous and saying you know fantastic to meet you good luck with what your home life you know knowing that I could get on a plane and they were stuck there. So what are the conditions that they are living in? I I mentioned they're living under Tarpoland but just how bad is it? It's extremely bad in Samos. It's extremely bad on all the Greek frontier islands. You know, it's an absolute scandal that it's not headline in our news and that Brexit dominates. These people are still enduring that hardship, but we don't hear about them. Basically, the camp in Samos was created back in 2015 for 750 or so refugees. There's a few sort of uh, container boxes things for people to live in and maybe one shower one toilet the camp now has a spillover of 5,000 people the majority are living under makeshift tents bits of tarpaulin you regularly saw people shifting bits of cardboard up the hill to sort of sleep on I mean it was absolutely dire and these are families that come from probably perfectly nice homes well that once were but perhaps are no longer you know, there are people like you and me who are used to living in a house and having sanitation to suddenly having to endure this extreme humiliation. That must be very tough for them, and it also must be tough for the volunteers to watch their suffering. It is very tough, but I think you just feel the work that you're doing there is so intensive and non-stop that you set aside that kind of difficulty and conflict of feelings because you just have to get on with the tasks to hand and which are very very practical and therefore you feel that you are at least doing something even though I fully recognize and everybody does this is not the solution 
it's just a bit like having a finger in the dam and even that is hard because when Samos volunteers started up it was to support perhaps around a thousand refugees and it's now become five thousand and it's a small team of perhaps altogether about 40 people. So what was your job there? I was kind of like musician in residence, that was part of my job, but I also got stuck in with just every um, job that needed doing, so I was helping in the laundry, where they had six washing machines that were going non-stop to try and just get round the entire camp to offer clean washing once in a while, once every four to five months people would get their four washing. Four to five months? Four to five months you could expect your, your clothes to be washed. People obviously did do their own hand washing if they could in between, but it's, you know, extremely inadequate. The Samos Volunteers runs um, a community centre which has to be staffed from eight in the morning till half past six at night. So everybody does a stint in there, helping run the classes that run in there. There was women's days and women and children's activities, which happened once a week, although there was also a dedicated space for them that they could go to. That was necessary because most of the camp is men, is young men. About half of the refugees are are men, a quarter are women and a quarter are children. And in the community centre, we needed to make sure that women still had their space, which was quite quite a challenge. And there was also many cultural issues around women needing some separate space just to come and have some shelter and a cup of tea. And So the volunteers supported all of that happening. So, looking back, by the sound of it, it was worth every moment. It definitely was worth every moment. It was hard. I cried almost like every day. <laughs> You get touched by individuals' stories. You feel physically exhausted. You can feel completely overwhelmed by the enormity of the problems there. But there was also just an incredible amount of joy, I would say. Particularly, I enjoyed the working with the children, who were just exuberant, bright, engaged with absolutely everything that was on offer to them which wasn't much but they loved it just doing art activities and music with them it's amazing how resilient they are the kids are incredibly resilient and i would say grown up before their years and when i think of kids here who are so much more cosseted it's almost like they're almost slightly hampered by that by being so cosseted that the kids over there were just well you dread to think what they've been through And I know there's a lot of trauma and difficulties and mental health issues. But, you know, when we actually ran the activities put on for them, they were loving it and fully part of it. So would you, will you go back? I'd love to think that I could go back. I've got such a busy life here. I need to carve out that time to do that again. But I would... You know, as my friend Louisa said, who was there with me at the same time, she said, a little bit of you stays there, and it, it definitely feels like that. I need to check up almost every day with what's happening over there. I think of them every single day, you know, when I put my washing in the washing machine or I put the dishwasher on or get into my nice cosy bed, I think of them, and I can't imagine that I'll ever forget that. So I th- would like to go back, yeah. The audience at her talk gave generously to help the work of the Samos volunteers, something others can do online, or by purchasing a book of recipes called Displaced Dishes, in which another Scot, Pam Gregory from Argyle, 
collected recipes from the refugees themselves. Again, that's available to order online. As Jika explained, she now thinks of the refugees she met and hopes others will continue to help the work of the volunteers as they bring support and comfort to those who feel trapped in the camps.